There's a certain irony about this episode. The guy who I often respectfully disagree with is not here to discuss the very topic of disagreement and difficult conversations, how to listen and be curious when you speak with those who see the world very differently than you do. While Jim is away, biking or hiking somewhere, we hear from Monica Guzman of Braver Angels. How we see the other has changed, and it is not in direct relationship to the actual disagreements that we hold. The anger and the rage that we see out there that that defines our division doesn't actually exist that much on the one-to-one level. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Political and cultural polarization is not only breaking up friendships and weakening many community and family ties, it also makes it profoundly more difficult for us to get things done. Think about how much progress there would be on climate, immigration, guns, and many other things if we stopped speaking in slogans and understood, rather than vilified, what the other side is saying. Monica Guzman is our guest. The daughter of Mexican immigrants, Monica is a bridge builder, journalist, and author. And her new book is called I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. She's director of storytelling for the cross-partisan group Braver Angels. Monica joins us from St. Petersburg, Florida. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much for having me. We all know that we're divided as a nation. And this phrase, toxic polarization, is just about everywhere. Why does this matter? I think of it as the problem that eats all other problems. It's the sludge at the base of everything else. On a social level, it constrains our creativity. We're so divided, we're blinded, we can't see the issues that we need to wrestle with clearly enough to wrestle with them well. We end up creating policies on a governmental level that can be really reactionary, based more on fear than a genuine engagement with stakeholders and their concerns. And then on a personal level, I'm hearing a lot of pain out there. Relationships that mean something to people, but that then have to end. Somebody burns the bridge. Someone feels they have to. There's no other choice. These differences are just too big. And then what happens is the glue that holds our society together starts to weaken and weaken and weaken. You talked about burning bridges, Mm -hmm. Um, building bridges. Does that mean compromising our beliefs all meeting in the middle? No. I think that that's one of the big myths about this. That's just not at all what happens. We conflate conversation and engagement with endorsement and agreement as if we're that vulnerable, as if just hearing somebody out or engaging them is already agreeing or endorsing. And it's not. It's really not. But I think that It makes a lot of sense that we carry that fear because we're living at a time where it appears 
a lot of toxic ideas are gaining steam depending on what side you are on. The other side has just fallen prey to nonsense. <laughs> and so, so no wonder we're that afraid of ideas. Okay. Say I'm a progressive and, and, and you're a conservative. Are our views of the other side wrong? I mean, if we had an accurate view of what others really felt, would we be as divided as we are now? No, we would not be. We would not be as divided if we had a clear view of how the other side felt because what we see in the social science research when we ask people, what do you think the other side believes, is alarming exaggerations. And those exaggerations justify our deep suspicion and fear. And a lot of our division is based on how we feel about each other and how we think the other side feels about us. And when that's exaggerated, it motivates behaviors that are actually not that justified. Many of us, including a bunch of my friends, are just not that interested in people mm. they disagree with. Why should we make a conscious effort not to silo ourselves? Yeah, lots of reasons. I spoke with a woman who is from the Midwest and is purple politically. And she told me about political arguments with her father and her father being much more conservative. And it got to the point where they yelled at each other and then they said, well, let's not talk about politics. But the problem she had with that was because certain of her political beliefs were so important to her, it got to the point where she thought her father wasn't even seeing her anymore. And so it became untenable to not talk at least some about politics because the relationship was fraying. He wasn't even really seeing her and what she cared about. And I think that's happening with a lot of people. So, so that's one of the answers is about relationships. And another one is, if we care about thinking for ourselves, I believe that there is a mandate that that person get out of their silo. Because if you stay in your silo, the factory settings here are that you will miss so much Whatever you think, it, it will get hard to know if you really think it. Or if you've subscribed to the package deal, a lot of the voices in your silo will not prime you to challenge yourself. And so if you value that, if you value staying sharp, then be interested, be interested in, in getting out of your silo. Let's get personal. You're pretty passionate about this, and you're the daughter of Mexican immigrants. Mm -hmm. They voted for Trump. You vote Democrat. Tell us why you became so interested in, in, in this topic of reaching across divides. It was a slow burn <laughs> for a while. One of the main threads really was my relationship with my parents. They became citizens in the year 2000, and I became citizen automatically because I was 17, and that's how it works. 
and they immediately became Republicans. And so it's been 22 years of, of wrestling with the big political divide between them and myself. And the, the, the time that, that got really tough for me where it started to feel like I couldn't ignore this was the 2015 presidential campaign, but really more after the 2016 election. I live in Seattle. Seattle is a highly democratic, liberal place. And at that time, it was a very anxious time if you were in an urban liberal city. And people would bring up headlines and try to bond over our anxiety and our outrage. And I would hear people inevitably start to say things about people who voted for Trump that made me feel personally implicated. Because I love two people who voted for Trump dearly, dearly. And I was starting to get this sense that, that at this point, what we liberals need to do is just completely shun or completely convert or just, you know, this just this monstrosity that's happened to our country is what I was hearing. And I knew it was wrong. And that's where it felt like, okay, we, we got to work on this. And how's it been going? Ah. <laughs> with your parents. I mean, do you talk politics with them? Oh, all the time. So uh, I've been on a, on a book tour and they joined me in Washington, D.C. They live in North Carolina now. And so, you know, we stayed in the same hotel room for several days. And there were at least three um, big political conversations with my mom and dad. And it was awesome. Yeah, we still do it. Uh, we, we learn a lot from it. And um, the other thing is, this is kind of a fun, a fun little little aside too. Is my dad writes songs uh, in his retirement? He's written more and more of them. He wrote a song about the book, <laughs> and and shared the music and lyrics with me maybe two weeks ago. Is it called "I Never Thought of It That Way"? It is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with my parents, it's it's been going it's been going well. It feels like it feels like we almost are eager, more eager than before to explore each other's perspectives. In your book, there's a story about what happened right after the 2016 election, I believe, uh, when uh, you and some friends or colleagues in Seattle, mostly liberal or progressive, were in a state of shock about Trump winning. It was like, we don't know anybody who voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. And you went and found some, didn't you? Yeah. So what we wanted to do was help people get curious about people who made a very different choice with the people who made a very different choice in a culture that was less familiar. So we made that a priority and we ended up organizing a, a visit to Sherman County, Oregon, in partnership with um, a wonderful uh, lifelong agricultural agent in the county. It's a highly agricultural county. And his name is Sandy. And it was a completely partnered thing. It took a long time to plan, but we did it. And we had about 20 people from Seattle go and meet about 20 people from Sherman County. This is a small county in the county seat of Morrow, which has something like 200 people in it. And I imagine uh, most of the people there <laughs> voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, um, 
in the in the voting records in 2016, it was 74% of Sherman County voted for Trump and 74% of King County where Seattle sits voted for Clinton. So they were our, our nearest mirror opposite county. Why was it remarkable? What happened that surprised you? So one of the things that I noticed was that I had had this assumption that even though those of us from the city didn't encounter a lot of agriculture or a lot of farm, I realized I still had this assumption that the folks in Sherman County had more to learn from us than we had to learn from them. That I realized what a self-serving assumption that was. Um, one of the things that really struck me was the contrast. They go to cities all the time. Their children go to college in cities. Many of their relatives have left Sherman County because the farming economy makes it tough for everybody to have their own patch of land. We're talking about thousands of acres, you know, per farm. So they, they all go to cities. They know what it's like. They're very familiar with it. But nobody from Seattle ever comes to Sherman County to check it out, to visit, to learn. So that really struck me and stood out to me that they were just kind of stunned that we were even there. And in at least one person, a farmer named Darren, who I talked to later, he told me about how during that trip, he was so eager to try to say everything to us. But, but he saw it as sort of our one chance, our one chance to tell these city folks about us because they never come. They never come. They have no idea. All they know is from the media. And, and so, yeah, their lifestyle is so little understood and so little seen by a lot of the power brokers in urban America. Does that point to a broader problem um, for liberals, especially that um, not only do we fail to understand people who are not like us, but we're also kind of dismissive of them. And we think we know, we know the answers. And why can't these people just, you know, understand what's what's obvious to us. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and maybe I wouldn't have been so emphatic about that before, but now I do think that's an enormous problem. I, you know, I do think there is this bias about urban living, right? That, that um, is this, this assumption that because I've, I'm so well read, I know everything I need to know about everything, you know, and that, and I think we have this, we have this bias that people themselves are not sources of learning. So long as you have your books and your theories and you check in with academia and you follow the news, then that's it. That's all you really need. And I think that is so misguided. I've really come around to this, that that kind of smarts, has nothing to do with what it takes to build a good society. The, the primary thing in building a good society is being able to put your concerns on the table, understand and see everyone's stake, and then be able to find the best balance that optimizes for everything. That's really hard, and we have to do it over and over again in good governance. It's not about being book smart. 
or obviously it's helped by being book smart, but not at the expense of <laughs> being people smart, you know? <laughs> if Jim was here right now, he would add, it's not just book smart. It's also that the TV we watch, yeah. the, the major media that we read, most of it is pretty liberal. And it's also written by people who live in big cities. Absolutely. And it's, I find the most interesting paradox uh, you know, I'm, I'm realizing this as I'm, as I'm speaking to you. The term lived experience, you've probably heard, become very popular in the last several years. And, and the idea is that we need, to, we need to know what people actually go through in order to understand them and make sure that, you know, from the liberal side, that everyone feels taken care of and safe. And the paradox I see is we are continually killing our own access to other people's lived experience. <laughs> Why are we doing that? Or we're making value judgments about whose lived experience matters and whose. This episode is brought to you by Talkiatry. Talking about mental health care isn't always easy. Finding care should be. Meet Talkiatry. They offer virtual in-network psychiatry to treat the most common mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, OCD, and trauma. Within a week, they can match you with a doctor who takes insurance and takes the time to listen. Get started at talkiatry.com slash start. That's T-A-L-K-I-A-T-R-Y dot com slash start. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Monica Guzman is our guest. I'm Richard Davies. Jim is away this week. You're listening to How Do We Fix It? We're sharing a conversation I had last year with author, journalist, and depolarization activist Monica Guzman of Braver Angels. Now back to our interview. So, Monica, let's talk more about how to have curious conversations with people who are not like you, who come from different backgrounds. How important is curiosity? Mm. Yeah, it's everything. This, this mental faculty that we all have that I think we, we underestimate. And we, we associate curiosity with sort of delightful learning, you know, learning that is really fun and exciting and let's get curious and what kids do in kindergarten. Uh, but actually, curiosity is a state of mind that you can turn on. You can, you can willingly make yourself curious. It can help us see a different way and get us out of the win-lose mode or the attack-defense mode that gets us repeating these toxic cycles. Our conversations, individual conversations, one-on-one, -on -one, the best way to overcome polarization. Yes. The only context where we have our full arsenal of communication tool available is the in-person conversation. You mentioned the one-on-one -on -one conversation. The one-on-one -on -one conversation is, is extremely powerful because 
it's maximum engagement between two minds. You know, when it's three or four or five or a hundred people, well, you know, there's more sort of passive listening that has to happen and less engagement where you're really kind of mining each other for insights. But the other thing is that, especially now, when so much of our discourse on controversial things happens in these in platforms where there's a bunch of invisible audiences, when we talk with someone on those platforms in that open space, we're not actually just talking to them. We're talking to a bunch of invisible people. And what that'll do is it will constrain us. It will make us perform perspectives that feel safe rather than explore perspectives we actually hold. So we're not going to get to candor and we're not gonna get as easily to vulnerability either. Having these difficult conversations, is there a specific roadmap? Are there how-to tips? Mm -hmm. Or is it more just bringing your vulnerability, your honesty, your humility to the table in an open-minded, respectful way? There, there is no script here. Really, it's about using the how-to tips in order to get familiar. It's like training wheels, you know, familiar with the overall approach and mindset that you described. But we can, but we can talk about some of the how-tos because I think some of them, uh, some of them are really important. Yeah, t tell us just a, two or three tips that we can, we can use. So I think among the most helpful, uh, one is when you want to ask why people believe what they believe, instead ask how they came to believe what they believe. When you ask people how instead of why, you're asking for their story. Um, you're asking them to tell you, you know, moments or scenes that play in their head as they imagine what they think about abortion or gun regulations or elections or what have you. What, what's in your head? What do you remember? What, what images from the past come up? Tell me about those. And then what people do is they give you, they, they take you on a tour instead of you putting them on trial. That's the thing you want to avoid. As curious and wonderful as the question why is, in contexts of distrust, it can often just get people's guard up and put you into that place where you're really just trying to defend yourselves at all costs, uh, at which point you're not really focused on learning and understanding anymore. Asking how but not why is a good tip. It kind of accepts the need for storytelling. Exactly. Yeah. Storytelling, we, we do underestimate its power. Take steps back and be like, how did, how did you get to this? And what you'll, what you'll learn in their stories is about concerns, not facts about the world. It's their own personal concerns. And that is a better channel to understanding. I think that the most powerful question you could ask that collects information is to ask people about their concerns. You know, what do you think? What's your opinion? Blah, blah, blah. That's what we tend to ask. But when you ask instead, so when you think about the, the, the so-called don't say gay bill, what, what are you concerned about? What comes up for you as a concern? Well, you know, there's this about kids and there's this about parents and there's this about teachers. And then you go, okay, yeah, what else? Anything else concern you? You know, and they'll sit there and they'll think about it and they'll tell you about something that they're still working on, but they'll tell you. And then you can share your own concerns, you know, and you can say, 
I see it very differently. I, I have a different set of concerns or you can agree with them on some of them. Yeah, I see what you mean. Your own relationship with the political issues that are out there and that are shaking us up and challenging us uh, rather than necessarily, you know, that again, that level where it feels like all you can do is just clash and, and, and contest Talk about the importance of emotion or feelings in these conversations. It's not just about arguing over the facts. Emotion is data. Emotion is the content of conversation, too. And I think that sometimes we make the mistake, understandably, of once the heat turns up real high in a conversation, we think someone's messed up. That's it. We can't go any farther. And, and, and we're done. Sometimes that is true. Sometimes the heat in a conversation is burning something. But other times, the heat in a conversation can cook something. And, and, and understanding the difference and, and knowing when, nope, we really are done. Someone, you know, either I'm really upset or you're really upset. We need to take a break. Cool. But if someone got mad, uh, I, I love this quote from an author named Valerie Cower. Anger is a force that protects that which is loved. If someone gets mad, if you hit a nerve, that means <laughs> that you have some information about what this person really cares about and you have a choice. You can be angry about it yourself or you can try to understand it. Um, in my experience, if people feel respected and heard, they don't necessarily mind people asking about the things they care about most. They just have to feel respected and heard, and that's the hardest part. The movement to bridge differences, to respond in a positive way to our bitter divisions as a society, is growing. You're part of Braver Angels. Tell us a little bit more about your organization. So Braver Angels is the nation's largest cross-partisan nonprofit uh, dedicated to depolarizing America. So we bring liberals, conservatives, libertarians, anyone off the spectrum, together uh, to, and this says this, this is in our mission statement, to strengthen our democratic republic. We work on what we call affective polarization. Affective polarization is the polarization that results from the feelings about each other. And if you look at the data, it's very disturbing. Um, the, the amount to which one side really despises the other has, has, has increased and to, to which we're motivated by stopping the other side, right? That's, that's just gotten bigger and bigger. It does not track with what's called ideological polarization, the actual divisions and disagreements, um, you know, at the base of our policies and our ideas. In other words, it's not that we're getting more right or left wing in our political views. It's that how we see the other has changed. Exactly. How we see the other has changed. And it is not in direct relationship to the actual disagreements that we hold. A lot of the times, Braver Angels hosts um, these incredible workshops that bring people together in certain structures so they can understand each other. And so many times at the end of those workshops, you know, people are asked, so what did you take away from this? And, and people will say, I had no idea that we weren't as divided as I thought. You know, people on either side will say that, but it's just that we don't give each other that many opportunities to actually engage with someone 
outside of these platforms where we do so much performance and signaling to know the truth, which is that we really are not that divided. The anger and the rage that we see out there that, that defines our division doesn't actually exist that much on the one-to-one level. What, what's your number one tip for how we make a little progress on this in our own lives? If you ask one more question before you jump in with your opinion, if you, if you decide to engage on a tough topic one time when you otherwise wouldn't, or if you decide to keep a relationship that you otherwise would have dropped, but you keep it, that is also a step toward curiosity. That itself is enough. This is not about waking up tomorrow and being a Zen master of intellectual humility with everyone that you talk to. This is about if everyone takes one step and it can really just be not burning the bridge that we were otherwise going to burn, using a little courage, having a little courage and patience with each other. Um, That's really enough. Monica Guzman, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on How Do We Fix It. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Monica Guzman on How Do We Fix It. Her book, I Never Thought of It That Way, is my recommendation for this week. Jim will be back for the next episode. Miranda Schaefer is our producer. This show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits at DaviesContent.com. Content.com.